Well, hello, my name is Mario Morales, and I'm one of the elder candidates for Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church. Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church is a church plant in the Jolie area seeking to constitute as a local church here, hopefully this year, um, and hopefully very soon. But in the meantime, one of the things that we're doing is providing an overview of the London Baptist Confession, 1689. And we're doing this in hopes of sort of presenting to those who are joining our efforts to plant a church in the Gillette area with a brief overview, a brief understanding of what the London Baptist Confession teaches. We deem this important because the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, will be our doctrinal standard for our church plan. And so we've gone through chapters one through five, and today we're going to go through chapters six and seven. And so let's consider chapter six and seven now. And so looking at chapter six now, chapter six has five paragraphs. And if you remember, we're just going through paragraph by paragraph. I'm going to read this paragraph. And as I'm reading, I'm going to explain some of the things that it, this uh, confession is emphasizing. So if you have a copy of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, I encourage you to turn to chapter six. And looking at paragraph one, well, first of all, let's consider the title of chapter six. Chapter six is titled, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. And so paragraph one, one reads as follows. Although God created man upright and perfect, this is Adam, and he gave him a righteous law. Remember this righteous law of do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It goes on to say, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof. Here it's noting that there is a promise given of obedience unto life. And there is a punishment guaranteed had he disobeyed or breached this law, this righteous law that God had given him. And this punishment was death. It goes on to say, yet he did not long abide in this honor. And so at some point, Adam ended up disobeying this righteous law that God gave him in the garden of not eating. And so, therefore, he did not abide in this honor for very long. It goes on to say that Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, and then by her seducing Adam. And so we're reminded again that it was first Satan, in the form of a serpent, that seduced Eve. And then Eve seduced Adam. And ultimately is Adam who, it goes on to say, without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation. No one forced Adam to sin. Adam made a conscious choice to sin and to transgress the righteous law that was given to him in the garden. And so he did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them. And so here we're, we can see that there is two things being said here. Adam did willfully transgress the law of their creation. The, the 69 teaches that there are two laws really that, that, are, that are given to man. There is the moral law, which is given to mankind as part of um, him being an image bearer of God. This law is written on the hearts of all mankind. On top of moral law, there is what we call positive law. 
And so if we look at Adam as a example of what moral law is and what positive law is, moral law is that righteous law of love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This law is written on his heart because he is an image bearer of God. But the positive law that is added on top of the moral law is that commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when we think of the difference between righteous, uh, between moral law and positive law, we could think of things and recognize things as being positive law because, first of all, they're, they don't fit under the category of love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourselves. And a summary of what that is can be seen in the Ten Commandments. But the other thing with positive law is there's nothing wrong with eating fruit. Um, uh, additional positive law would be things like the ceremonial laws and of the of the Jews in the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with mixing certain fabrics, and there's nothing wrong with eating pork, and you know all these things. There's nothing innately wrong with those things. They're only made wrong when God gives you it puts them within a law not to do the thing that He's telling you to do. And so this is what Adam ended up. Um, without being compulsed by anyone, he did willfully transgress the law of their creation, that's the moral law, and the command given unto them, which is, and it says here, in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased. And so here we see that we're going to be introduced with this idea that God is pleased to do all his holy will. And so what was his holy will here? It says, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed, that is God, who purposed all things and their ends unto, um, unto his, his purpose or fulfilling his purpose. It says, having purposed to order it to his own glory. And so we see the fall of man here in the garden, that Adam without uh, willfully transgressed not only the moral law written on his heart, but the righteous law that was added to the moral law of not eating of the fruit, but that this was all according to the wise and holy counsel of God, God allowing these things to happen so that ultimately it would bring about his glory. Looking at now paragraph two of chapter six, we can consider the results of the fall. And so chapter two reads as follows. Our first parents by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. This is a helpful reminder to understand the state that both Adam and Eve were created by being put in the garden. Um, well, first of all, by being created in the image of God, they were created with original righteousness. But when Adam is put in the garden and given a helper with Eve, they have a, a unique relationship, this communion with God. But they end up falling from this, from this original righteousness and from this communion with God. And so paragraph two goes on to say, and we in them, whereby death came upon all. And so we begin to see that Adam represents all mankind. And because of Adam's fall from a righteous standing before God and communion with God, we also being born from Adam have fallen as well. And we know this to be true because 
with the curse of this of breaking this law was and the punishment was death and indeed we all end up coming unto death um, or, or succumbing to death and so if we consider death the punishment and we all die we must be guilty in adam so it says and we in them that is in adam and eve and we in them whereby death came upon all all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body and so here it just talks about the effects and the results of sin because of adam and because of his disobedience we are all born guilty in adam and in in addition to that we are all born with a nature that is bent towards sinning all of our faculties and parts of the soul and, and body are all defiled by the curse of sin. And so there's nothing left that hasn't been um, defiled by the sin of Adam. Looking at paragraph three now, we can consider the transmission of sin. The transmission of sin. And so they, it reads, they being the root, that is Adam and Eve being the root of the results of sin and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind that is they are our first parent so the result of Adam's choice primarily but Adam and Eve's choice has affected all mankind the guilt of the sin was imputed so here again we see that the guilt of Adam was imputed that means it's it's like put upon us, not by choice. We have no choice. We are born imputed with the guilt of Adam. The guilt of the sin was imputed and the corrupted nature conveyed. And so again, we see that our natures are corrupted by the guilt of Adam, by the choice of Adam. And the result is, is that we're born guilty. Uh, we're born already declared guilty of being a sinner and our natures are bent towards sinning. So it says, it says, uh, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupt and corrupted nature was conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generations. So this is all mankind. This is both you and me. Being now conceived in sin and by nature, children of wrath. This again, these are all just different titles, different angles at which we can look at ourselves and consider our standing before God. The servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. And if we were to stop here with this paragraph, we'd be left wondering what hope is there or what purpose is there in this life? If I'm born with the guilt of Adam, if I can't do anything to sort of change the results of the guilt of Adam, if I'm born with a nature that is bent towards sinning, if I am being conceived and if I was conceived in sin and if I am by nature a child of wrath, a servant of sin and a subject of death, and these other words and all other miseries, miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. If that were all, I would be without hope. There would be no point in thinking that there was anything that I could do to change that about me. 
But here this uh, paragraph ends with this statement. Unless the Lord Jesus set them free. And so we see glimpses, just little sprinkles of sort of the confession moving from the fall of man to this promise of salvation, or at least a hope that is there for all mankind to experience um, forgiveness and redemption from the guilt of Adam and from a nature that is bent towards sinning. And so let us look at paragraph four of chapter six. And paragraph four really is going to talk about original sin and its fruit. So chapter or paragraph four reads as follows. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. So this is really just talking about this, this original corruption that is in Adam and then now is in us. Well, really, this it was not original to Adam. Adam sinned and broke the righteous law and the moral law. But because we are, um, we are the posterity of Adam, we have original corruption from the, from the moment of conception. It says we are utterly indisposed. We are utterly disabled and utterly made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. And one could wonder, how is that even possible? How can you look at a little child and consider a child, or even someone that does good in society and does good things, how can we consider them to be utterly indisposed, disabled and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil? Really, this has to do with the idea that to stand before a holy God require, requires of us to not be guilty of sin. And because the guilt of Adam was imputed on us, and we are born with a, with a nature that is bent towards sin, we stand without any hope of, of not being seen as a transgressor of the law, of, the, of, the, of both the moral law of God and any... Um, any additional law given to us in the Bible. And so we see that when God looks at us and when God considers us, or even when the scriptures consider the state of man, the, the scriptures call man um, outside of Christ to be a person that is indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. If I'm capable of doing one one small little sin I'm capable of doing any type of sin. Really, my conscience bearing witness against me when I'm tempted. There, there are plenty of times where I can think about times where I, I could have done something and I did it. And that's great. But I'm still guilty of sin in Adam. And I'm still capable of sinning. And I have sinned. And so because of those two things, I, I, I stand without any hope if I was left to my own merit before a holy God. But in any case, this paragraph four says that from this original corruption do precede all actual transgressions. And so if we wanted to wonder why is it that I sin, it is because we're born with a corruption that is original to our natures now since we come from Adam. 
from a, a man that was born righteous with original righteousness and then fell from a state of, of righteousness. And so now paragraph five um, really is going to talk about sin in the life of the believer. And so paragraph five reads this way. This corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. When it says first motions there, that's really the thoughts of the mind or the inclinations of the heart. And so what this um, paragraph is just affirming is really the effects of the fall and the corruption of mankind resulting in a, in, in a person that is born with a corrupted nature and with a bent towards sin. These things, in a way, remain in the life of the believer. Although he has been forgiven, pardoned, and, and given a, a new nature, there, the corruption still has this effect on man on the Christian man. And so the Christian isn't, isn't now living a life that is unable to sin, a, sort of like a guilt-free life. There are those who affirm this idea that once you become a Christian, there's a, you, can, you can sin no more, no matter what you do, um, or at least your actions and the thoughts of your mind cease to be sin. Now, this, this paragraph affirms the idea that we still sin. We haven't entered into a state of glory that ceases to sin both physically and in the mind and in the heart. And so now we're going to see or be introduced to the idea of God's plan of redemption and that God, God's plan of redemption is brought um, to us through the actions of God making covenant with mankind or God covenanting with mankind. And so we're going to move to chapter 7 now. And so now, considering chapter 7, chapter 7 is called Of God's Covenant. And here we're going to be introduced to the plan of salvation in which God brings about redemption to mankind through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when it talks about, or when the title says Of God's Covenant, this is the new covenant, the covenant of grace. So chapter 7 has three paragraphs. And paragraph one is going to introduce to us the necessity of a covenant. And really, paragraph one is going to talk about two reasons why there's a need for a covenant. And the first reason is because there is a distance between the creature and the creator automatically. That distance distance us distances us from him because we are not God. And so we cannot sort of reach out and enter into a relationship with him. And it's also going to be because, or the second reason is because um, there is a reward of life to be had. And although if we were to obey the moral law perfectly, that would not be enough to attain the reward of life. And so, because of those two reasons, God is going to bridge the gap. And he does that by way of covenant. So this paragraph one reads this way. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, 
So automatically, no matter what, we owe this obedience to him. Yet they could never have attained the reward of life. They couldn't. If Adam was was created and given Eve and they were just lived on this this life perfectly obeying the moral law of God written on the hearts of mankind, that moral law to love God with our, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as, as ourselves, if he were to do that only perfectly, that would not be enough to attain uh, this reward of eternal life. And for Adam, um, the way that was presented to him was that additional law, that positive law, that that extra law given on top of the moral law, which was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here it says, because there is a gap between the creature and the creator, and because there was a reward of eternal life that he could not grasp just by basic obedience unto the moral law, because of these things, God needed to bridge the gap. And he does this by what it says here, the language it says is by a voluntary condescension on God's part. God did not, nothing forced God to do this. This was all um, God being gracious and merciful to mankind. And the way that he did this, it says in this last part here, he did this, um, or which, which he was pleased to do or to express by way of covenant. And so we begin to see now the necessity of the covenant in paragraph one. And let's look at paragraph two now. Paragraph two is going to talk again about the complication of sin. So it reads this way. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall. I mean, we've talked about this now already in chapter six. It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. And so here we begin to see glimpses. If we were left in just chapter six and there was no chapter seven, there would be no hope. But here we see now that it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life, that is eternal life, and salvation, that is being saved from this um, corrupted nature that we have and this, this, um, the guilt of Adam, to be saved from these things by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. And so we see now that due to the effects of sin, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. And what is a covenant of grace? The covenant of grace is, it says right here, is that which wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. What is the covenant of grace? Or what is this eternal life? How do we get it? It says here, requiring of them only faith in Jesus, that they may be saved. And he promises to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. What joy there is in knowing that God has bridged the gap that sin has further produced in the life of the cre creature, of that reasonable creature. So now let's consider paragraph three of chapter seven. 
paragraph three is going to consider how did God first reveal this covenant of grace to mankind? Or when did he first do this? And you might be a little surprised to know when God first revealed this covenant of grace to mankind. Maybe you've missed it in the past. Paragraph three reads this way. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. And so when we consider the gospel, maybe you've never considered that what we are talking about is really this this plan of salvation, this transaction that is done by way of covenant, where God was pleased to create a covenant of grace to save mankind from sin. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And afterwards, by farther steps. So let's consider, um, let's consider this, uh, where it says that it was first of all revealed to Adam in the promise. If you want to turn to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, I'm opening up my Bible right now. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this is really the promise of the gospel, or this is the revelation of this covenant of grace revealed by way of a promise to Adam. When Adam, or when God was speaking to Eve, and he said regarding um, the serpent and the seed of the woman, God says, and I will put enmity between you, he's talking to Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. This is the seed of the woman. This is a death blow to the serpent. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so maybe you're familiar with that passage, and maybe you never recognize that this is the first promise of the gospel being preached by God in the form of a promise to both Adam and Eve. And also for Satan, this is the first of God declaring his victory over Satan through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So paragraph three said that this covenant is, re is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And then it says, and afterwards by farther steps. Those farther steps are just further revelation throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over through different signs, the different um, sacrifices of the Old Testament, through the temple, through the tabernacle, through the feasts, through all these different ways. It doesn't really specify what those are. That requires more study in the scriptures. But it just affirms this idea that God was constantly revealing this plan of redemption through farther steps. And then it goes on to say, until, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant trans transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. So what that phrase just means is that this whole thing of uh, the plan of redemption that is revealed and accomplished in time and space through the covenant of grace is really founded on this eternal 
agreement, or we can call it a, a covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And there are a couple of verses for that that we can consider um, when we're considering this eternal transaction that happened outside of space and time uh, between the Father and the, and the Son. We can consider 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And in Titus um, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised, or promised before time began. And so we see Scripture affirming this promise of redemption. And when we consider what that promise was, we, we use language as a covenant or a transaction or an agreement between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to bring about redemption for mankind. That's outside of space and time. When we consider that transaction in space and time, we see that as the covenant of grace, which was first promised to Adam and then revealed by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. That full discovery is, is the incarnate Christ coming, living and dying and being buried and being raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. The confession goes on to say, after speaking about this eternal covenant in the form of a transaction between the Father and the Son, it says, And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all of the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved, not that everyone is saved, but that all those who are saved do obtain life and blessed immortality. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocence, innocency. And so really what this wants to talk about is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and not by works of the law. Man can try to be as good as he can be, but he cannot be good enough to earn forgiveness and salvation, or to earn eternal life. That's because, again, we're reminded from chapter 6 that the fall of Adam has affected all of mankind. His guilt is imputed onto us, and we are born with a nature that is corrupted, that is capable of sinning, and has sinned, and does sin, both physically and spiritually, with our minds and with our hearts. And if we were left to our own demise, we would be without hope, and we would be f deserving the full wrath of God. Indeed, we do if we are left without a way of salvation. But for those who are redeemed, those who are elect unto salvation, they are given a promise first in the Old Testament when Adam and Eve were given a promise of this seed that was going to crush the head of the serpent and then through further steps until the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Now all of mankind are now saved. They are now forgiven through the person and work of Christ, by faith alone, apart from works. And that this is all what we can call the covenant of grace, that bridge that God has, that, that God has bridged um, for mankind due to the fact that we're creatures and we're not a creator and we are guilty of sin. And so there is hope for those 
who are in Christ. And there's hope for you if you are not in Christ to consider who you are, consider why did God create you, and then consider whether you are truly in a state of of being guiltless, of being capable of standing before a holy God. Because if you are not, I want to implore you to read the scriptures or to at least hear this gospel message that God has provided a way of salvation, a way of redemption. He has promised this from the beginning of time to save a people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he has done this. We have the scriptures that teach us these things and we can we can we can believe in them and trust in them, which really means just seeing the person and work of Christ and trusting in his work and not in, in our own self-righteousness to stand before a holy God forgiven and redeemed. This world will come with its hardships because we still are capable of sinning and we are still capable of being sinned against. And yet we need to look to the scriptures and trust them that because of what Christ has done, sin has been conquered, death has been conquered, we can now stand in victory in what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this short time as we consider this overview of what the London Baptist Confession of 1609 teaches. We thank you for um, just the faithful history that is um, the Christian history and being able to see the work that men before us have done in creating confessions of faith that look to the scriptures and seek to promote and seek to confess and put pen to paper what they believe the Bible is teaching. And so we thank you that we can stand with them and say, we believe that this is what the Bible says concerning today now the fall of man and the corruption of sin and what it has done to all mankind and then being able to now confess that God has always had a plan of redemption since the since before the world began and that this was revealed through small glimpses but it has always been the gospel being revealed and presented to mankind from the very beginning until it had reached its climax its full revelation when Christ came we thank you Lord that you have come and that you have saved a people through your life and your death, and your resurrection, and your ascension. And Father, we ask, Lord, that through the work of the Spirit in our hearts, that we could be tempted yet without sin, that we can continue to put to death the flesh, our desires that are still bent towards wanting to sin against you and disobey your law. And we thank you that we can find full assurance of forgiveness in this life because of what Christ has done for us. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a nice day.